This is WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Also streaming live online at WVEW.org. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. On the air every Sunday at noon. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook, at Indigo Radio, and on Instagram. You can find our archive of shows in SoundCloud and iTunes under Indigo Radio. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests and not the radio station. This is Kelly. I am a third grade teacher in Massachusetts and a teacher in the Spark Teacher Training Program here in Brattleboro. Today's show will look at the media. How do we analyze and evaluate the media? What is the state of the media in our country currently? And what would we like the media to be? Last week, I interviewed Tim Sutton. He earned his PhD from the Department of Communication at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and most recently taught media studies at Mount Holyoke College and at Bunker Hill Community College. I wanted to start the show by sharing a quote from political dissident Noam Chomsky. Control of thought is more important for governments that are free and popular than for despotic and military states. The logic is straightforward. A despotic state can control its domestic enemies by force. But as the state loses this weapon, other devices are required to prevent the ignorant masses from interfering with public affairs, which are none of their business. The public are to be observers, not participants, consumers of ideology as well as products. We are going to go to a song break, but when we come back, we will begin by talking about the history of the media in the U.S.
just heard Paparazzi by Lady Gaga. Today we are talking about the media. And I will now go to the interview that I did last week with media educator Tim Sutton. Hi Tim, thanks so much for being on Indigo Radio today. Hi, thanks for having me. Can you give us a brief history of the media? Well, that's a broad question um, to answer in just a few words. There is one um, great book that I would recommend by Juan Gonzalez, who happens to be a co-host of a program called Democracy Now! Um, And the book is News for All the People. And it's co-authored with another fellow named Joseph Torres. And it details the history of the media in the United States from the perspective of of um, outside the mainstream, uh, starting with the black press in the early days of this country and abolitionist press and going up all the way to following the civil rights movement in the 1970s and 80s, movements of, of journalists to diversify television newsrooms um, and everything in between. Um, and so... There's it's 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 a broad reach, starting with newspapers, of course, and publishing, and then expanding in the 20th century with um, radio, with television and the Internet. Robert McChesney is a great historian of the media and Marxist media scholar, and he talks about the transition from sort of broadsheets being published in the early days of the country to the penny press to journalism sort of being consolidated into centers of power in in different municipalities like every city would have uh, different competing newspapers and often that the, that co- the competition would be between or across political parties or different sometimes even specific politicians would have relationships with different publishers but at first of course the power of the press was whoever actually had a press somebody like maybe Benjamin Franklin the ability to actually print on paper and then distribute it. And often they would be just one page long. Then there was the penny press, which were more widely distributed. And because they were so cheap, because they would be a penny and more widely read, there, there were so many newspapers in the 19th century. They'd be published in the morning. Another edition would come out in the afternoon and there'd be multiple perspectives represented. There was the foreign language press. Every group of immigrants that arrived in North America, often speaking their own language, would then also, somebody would start up a newspaper and print in in Russian, in Chinese, in German, in Yiddish, in every other language that anybody has ever spoken who arrived here. Uh, and it was quite diverse and competition was fierce. There were uh, labor unions had their own newspapers, Um, political parties had their own newspapers. And of course, the information would be presented from a specific point of view. But there were competing points of view, all points of view were, were getting published and people had access to uh, different sources of information from different competing points of view. That sort of changed towards the second half of the 19th century when newspapers began consolidating. They, it turned out that publishing was extremely profitable because there were sources of revenue at both ends, both at 
through advertising and then also through the cost of subscriptions. And uh, classified placing classified ads was another place of of revenue for the publishers. And in order to reach larger audiences and increase the subscription income, then the publishers tried to become more of a, a single source of information for the broadest audience possible, which gave rise to the notion of objectivity in journalism, that a journalist needs to be objective in order to present information that doesn't seem biased. There's, of course, question whether that's even possible, but from the perspective of the publishers, their goal wasn't to be any, the most truthful or factual. The goal was to sell as many papers as possible. And so objectivity became a sort of a veil to disguise already existing biases and present themselves as if they were objective truth. So if we fast forward to today, when we do have large media conglomerates that reach an, a nationwide audience, can you talk about who owns and controls the media? So can you touch on both the mainstream media but also public media and independent media. Sure. The, this, this may be the most important question to answer, and it's getting more complicated. It's never been an easy answer, but, and it also depends on when we're talking about the media, it's also helpful to be specific about what forms of media we're talking about. And so often when we say the media, we're referring to journalism or the news media, and sometimes even specifically television news journalism or um, the 24-hour cable news networks. But of course, the media also includes books and magazines and Hollywood films and independent films and television and streaming media and the internet and um, everything in between. And more and more, media corporations are involved in every single one, every single aspect of those. For example, Disney, which owns ABC, which has a news organization, ABC News. Um, they're also involved in sports like ESPN and film production, which is what they're, of course, best known as. And then all the theme parks and toys and everything else. Disney remains dominant, but there's fewer and fewer corporations that own these media empires. And then the question becomes a little bit more complicated when you start talking about the internet as well. And so there's another small handful of corporations that are dominating internet traffic. When talking about ownership, I, I think it is maybe helpful to think about distribution. I, I think about this in terms of one corporation where it's most obvious is Time Warner. Uh, because maybe you, you remember when Time Warner was called AOL Time Warner. The, the point is that the, there's an ex the most money is to be had in the distribution of media. And so there was a point in, in our history of the internet that AOL uh, America Online was dominant and was raking in cash enough so that they were able to buy out the corporation Time Warner. Um, Time Warner was, of course, itself the result of a merger between a publishing empire, Time Life, and a movie studio, Warner Brothers. And so in the, around 2000, 1999 or 2000, AOL Time Warner was the largest media corporation in the United States. And over time, they sort of diversified and different aspects of it have branched off. Like Warner Music, I think, is no longer a part of this corporation. They're independent somehow. And they drop AOL from the, the name. Um, but more recently, AT&T has purchased Time Warner. And again, once again, the point being that uh, AT&T, which is a phone note, supposedly like a cell phone, telephone operator. It's the distribution that is really profitable for these corporations. 
and they're all looking for content to put on their devices so they can sell devices and sell subscriptions because that's where the money is. You also asked about public media and independent media. And here again, ownership matters, but it's also instructive to look at where the money is coming from. So in the case of PBS or NPR, they both receive funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which was set up by the U.S. government fairly recently, around 1968 or 69. I don't know the exact year, but the Corporation for Public Broadcasting was set up in with the intention of allowing public television and radio to operate free from government interference as much as possible. And over the years, they that funding has consistently been under, under the corporation for public broadcasting has been consistently underfunded it it does not give any station enough money to operate or any producer and so the s- local stations make that up by having pledge drives and s- asking for do- donations and also running on v- volunteer labor i i once uh, interviewed the station manager at a local NPR station here in Eugene, Oregon. And he told me his answer to this question, I think was was really interesting. He described the funding for the local radio station as a three-legged stool with one of the legs missing, meaning that it makes it hard to stand up. And so the three legs of funding would be the government, corporate underwriting, and listener pledges and there is no money from the government and so it means relying more and more on underwriting and those underwriters are the same advertisers that advertise on commercial television so that raises the question of how independent is public media from corporate influence is it any different from corporate owned media and then so what would you say, what is independent media? And is there independent media? Well, there certainly is. There are examples of it. It's, it's always hard to maintain that independence. And often funding is the issue. I'm old enough to remember the, the protests in Seattle, 1999, against the WTO. And there was a, a website I think it was indymedia.org that started up as a tool for activists to organize their protest actions during that week of mobilization. And indie media w- websites s- popped up across the country. Most major cities had an indie media website that was somewhat like a message board, somewhat like an early example of social media. Um, or social networking. Uh, And it was uh, like uh, video producers. You could post your video there. Um, You could link to articles written by activists uh, reporting on stories that did not get covered in by local television, for example. And it was really interesting and really exciting moment for independent media when that was happening. Other examples would be local, uh, the local cable access television channels that by law, the FCC requires cable providers to, because municipalities grant a monopoly to a local cable provider for the entire, for everybody who lives in a community um, in, in order not to violate uh, anti-monopoly laws, they're required to provide access to the public to a channel. And these are local cable, uh, public access cable channels that often they play school board meetings or city council meetings. Um, There might be crazy late night programs that somebody self, some volunteer produces for themselves and gets it maybe on at like midnight or 1am. They're always struggling for money and struggling for participation um, because everybody works. Nobody has, it's hard to be a full-time producer and hold down uh, on a volunteer basis while holding down a a full-time job elsewhere. 
radio is a little bit more successful at that because the um, maybe because the level of commitment is lower that you can produce a, a radio program for a few hours out of the week or every other week. And it doesn't interfere with your day-to-day life as much as uh, television and video is just slightly more labor intensive. Personally, I'm a huge fan of student radio. I think that's one of one location that funding is often not an issue because many, not all, but many student radio stations receive their funding through student government. And the students themselves see the value in maintaining the radio station. Um, students themselves are often the volunteers. Sometimes it's a combination of studio, uh, students and uh, community members from wherever the university is located. It's a great entry level, like nobody expects it to be polished. And so there's a level of amateurishness that I find somewhat endearing. So would you say what delineates independent media from the mainstream media is specifically about where the funding comes from? That's one good indicator. Possibly not the only indicator. Um, it, it may also be about where is the attention focused. If we're talking about journalism, where is the whose stories are being told and whose stories are being let, left out? It's a good guide. It's, it's, and, and, and those things are related too. I don't know if one is determinant of the other, but it, it may be sort of like a chicken and the egg. You're listening to Indigo Radio, and that was the first part of my interview with media educator Tim Sutton. The next song I'm going to play is called Oaxaca por la Libertad, and it is in commemoration of the 2006 uprising in Oaxaca, Mexico. In 2006, as a response to severe government repression of a teacher strike in the city, the APO, the Asamblea Popular del Pueblo de Oaxaca, the Popular Assembly of the People of Oaxaca, was formed. Along with the teachers and the people of the city, they rose up to demand the resignation of the governor, Ulises Ruiz. Using the university radio to organize people across the city, they closed down the municipal buildings and took power from the police. The federal government sent in troops and paramilitaries to quell the uprising, and the people used the radio to communicate with both the barricades around the city, but also to people in their homes when they were needed on the streets. When the government sabotaged the radio stations with the radio station control boards, the APO took over 12 commercial radio stations in the city to get the word out. Then, during the Women's March, also known as the March of Pots and Pans, since the women took pots and pans from their houses to bang during the march, the women took over control of the local television station. They evicted the managers and learned to use the equipment to share their stories and their perspective with the city. In fact, some of Indigo Radio's first ever shows were about this six-month-long uprising. Here is Oaxaca por la Libertad. Estoy harto de ver cómo abusan de mí, que maltratan mi pueblo y lo hacen sufrir. Estoy harto de ver cómo pueden matar a los niños maestros en esta ciudad. Estoy harto, estamos hartos. Lo vamos a gritar El pueblo 
pueblo unido vamos a luchar Oaxaca debes de levantarte Oaxaca vamos a luchar Por los niños la paz, por la humanidad, por tu libertad Oaxaca debes de levantarte Oaxaca vamos a luchar por la educación, por la humanidad, por tu libertad. Estoy harto de ver cómo pueden matar, cómo pueden matar a los niños maestros en esta ciudad. Estoy harto, estamos hartos y lo vamos a gritar, lo vamos a gritar. El pueblo unido vamos a luchar. Oaxaca debes de levantarte Oaxaca vamos a luchar Por los niños la paz, por la humanidad, por tu libertad Oaxaca debes de levantarte Oaxaca vamos a luchar Por la educación, por un mundo por la libertad Oaxaca debes de levantarte Oaxaca vamos a luchar Por un mundo mejor Por los niños la paz Por la humanidad Oaxaca debes de levantarte Oaxaca vamos a luchar los niños la paz por la humanidad por tu libertad por los niños la paz por la humanidad por tu libertad por los niños la paz por la humanidad por tu libertad listening to Indigo Radio. This is Kelly, and today we are talking about the media. In the next part of our interview, we start by talking about the ideology of the mainstream media. So Amy Goodman recently did an interview with Rolling Stone in which she talked about the media in this country, and there is just a quote from her that we're going to play. We are not advertisement-driven. We don't take money from the government or from corporations, so we are not in that situation. And as for networks that are, you know, break every five or six minutes for an oil or a gas ad or for an ad for a military contractor, I think that it is not obvious, as it might be in other countries where someone calls a reporter uh, from Boeing and says, you won't do the story. I think it's a kind of shared ideology, a bit of a consensus. People know how they can rise in a media organization and what will get them um, uh, marginalized. And we have to change that landscape. And, you know, what's happening today in this country, the power of the movements, it is changing things. And we have to continue along that path that allows the majority of people to be heard. It's the way we communicate with each other is through the media. So that was Amy Goodman being interviewed by Julian Casablancas. Can you comment on what she said in this part? It's uh, Amy Goodman is, is amazing. And I think, uh, she, I think she's talking about how journalists self-censor it's it's hard to there's never going to be some memo from the ceo of a corporation saying um don't don't cover this story 
but journalists know if they want to move up and keep their job, um, what stories get airtime, what's going to help them in their career to move up, and what's going to get axed, what's going to get left on the cutting room floor. So given all of this that we just talked about, who would you say, and I know it's complicated because there's many forms of media, but overarching, kind of in looking overall, overall look at the media, who would you say the media serves and who does it not serve? Oh, I, I think there's no question that media serves corporations. First and foremost, the, the main role that the media plays is maintaining this cycle of consumption. Like the main message of watching television or films is just buy, buy, buy. And, and to create a sort of a dissatisfaction in ourselves, in, in our psyches, that can only ever be filled by purchasing a commodity, whether it's your teeth or how you smell or um, your armpit hair, um, that there's the, the, the main route to happiness is through consumption. And it's not only advertising that sends us this message. It's, it's, it's the content between the advertisements as well. The, the happy, shiny people living in their high-rise apartments in New York City who lead these lifestyles that are completely unattainable or, and maybe not even desirable, maybe have nothing to do with what we would normally aspire to. But because it's all we're exposed to, that suddenly our own desires are transformed. So obviously, um, fake news has been a political buzzword these last four years, which is a right-wing term. Can you talk about the difference between fake news and the left's criticism of the media? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I and I love this question. Thanks for asking. It's um, and it's also hard to answer. When I hear fake news, I always think back to it wasn't always a term used by right-wing demagogues I, because I remember that The Daily Show, when it was under Jon Stewart, referred to itself as fake news. At the same time, there have been numerous studies that show that viewers of The Daily Show were actually better informed in uh, in current events than were viewers of Fox News. Um, those are studies that date back to the Bush era. I'm just thinking about how, like, for example, in the New York Times, there is real information that is factually true. Yes. And it is information that the right would say is fake news. The extreme white right would say is fake news. Right. And... And I would disagree with that by saying there are such things as facts, but it doesn't yeah, mean that yeah. my own criticism of the New York Times and the way that they present that information. Right. And so, the, I mean, there's, of course, the New York Times absolutely deserves to be critiqued um, and for, for their, for number, for a number of reasons, um, their, the, the biases which remain invisible in not just the New York Times, but the New York Times is the clearest example. Um, there's a bias in favor of the status quo. There's a bias in favor of capitalism. There's a bias in favor of um, people in power, voices of people in power, um, as opposed to the voices of activists, um, the homeless or working people. And those biases remain unspoken and invisible while maintaining the veneer of objectivity. And so, yes, there are, of course, facts that are reported in the New York Times. Um, it's full of facts, but facts are themselves meaningless without context. And it's the context that is where these cultural battles are taking place. Right, because I feel like what the right is saying is that these facts are not facts. They're not even true. There's And there, there's a denial right. of evidence. 
Right. That is, I think, a tactic that we can kind of trace to the tobacco industry first um, in battling lawsuits against um, the big tobacco um, bef- before the, before tobacco settled with the United States government. They pioneered this tactic, which is also used by um, uh, climate change deniers, that the science is out, that the science is disputed. Um, the, and by actively um, paying for studies that would refute other medical studies that link smoking to lung cancer. Um, and, and, and it just, of course they're wrong, uh, but what it does for them is prolong the lawsuit so that they can, the longer the court case was undecided, the more they were able to reap in their massive profits without labeling cigarette packages. Exxon and is as guilty of the same. They, their own scientists knew that burning fossil fuels caused climate change back in the 70s. But throughout the 80s and 90s, they were funding studies, scientists who would um, publish reports in, in, in academic journals that refuted the link between burning fossil fuels and climate change that, so that they could just eke out a few more decades of earth shattering profits. And the Republican party now is taking, taking up that uh, tactic to, and, um, and other actors as well. I think the, the other source of fake news that we hear about a lot is Russian hackers. Um, And Russian hackers are, are doing something similar as well. Looking at sources of division, already existing sources of division, and just making them worse by issuing disinformation. Right. And then the places, getting back to what you were saying before, that are issuing factual information, again, the New York Times would say that climate change exists and they would publish pieces on climate change. But yeah. the, the animal well, agriculture industry has been so um, effective at silencing journalists that animal agriculture is ex- never linked to climate change in the news. Correct, it's yes. Of, like silence of part of the picking and do and don't say. Yeah, and 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 then also um, lobbying to pass laws that would criminalize investigations into the practices of of meat processing plants. Yeah, those investigations are are not happening. So, how should people discern what to believe? Well, that's that's really tough. Um, my advice is really just to read as much as possible that don't get all your information from cable news. Don't get all your information from Facebook, but read multiple sources. Uh, There's nothing wrong with getting information from television or from the internet, as long as you're also reading and not just reading one source. Don't just rely on the New York times. Try to read as widely as possible it's not easy to do because of time and money um, that we need, we need to journalism also needs to be supported. And so that's, that's another conversation to have is the the crisis in journalism and the funding mechanism, which is, um, um, but that's a, that's a, that's another long discussion to be had to, to be well-informed, I think, just means consuming as much information from as many disparate sources as you have time for. It's funny because I teach third grade, and one of the things that we teach when the kids are reading informational text is that you take your things that you learned and ideas that you learned about a topic from one text, and you keep thinking about them while you read the next text so that you're holding all those things so that you can compare them and think about them and try to like understand them if there's contradictions or if there or if there it's new information that's not contradicting and try to understand it 
but using many um, sources. That's that's wonderful advice that everyone should be following. That that gets to context. That facts by themselves are are not helpful without the context that comes with it, and that comes from um, taking what you read from one source and then thinking about it in terms of the next source that you come across.
this is Indigo Radio. Today we are talking about the media, and you just heard Requiem for Gari Lankesh by Arti Rao Shetty. The song is a tribute to the Indian journalist Gauri Lankesh, who was murdered in 2018. We were just talking about being critical of the mainstream media for its bias in favor of capitalism and of corporations and of the wealthy. And yeah, of course, in spite of that, we know that journalism can be incredibly dangerous to those in power, which is why it's so important for them to control it. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, 1,396 journalists worldwide have been murdered since 1992. 61 this year. Many, many more are imprisoned for their work, including WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who hasn't been who has been imprisoned in London since April of last year and is awaiting the verdict on his extradition to the U.S. This is an incredibly important verdict, and if he is extradited, it will really mean the end of journalistic freedom as we know it. Even Sarah Palin is calling for him to be pardoned. So now I will go to part three of my interview with Tim Sutton. So now I have kind of a bigger question just about the role of media in society at large. And just looking at so many of the, the divisions and the ills that are that are so apparent in like even if we just stick to the United States right now, but obviously around the world, um, people have a lot of theories about why people believe objective falsehoods such as that immigrants are taking our jobs or that climate change isn't real or just ideas that are racist or misogynistic or nationalist. And I think one theory I hear a lot is that the media is essentially the root of all of these problems and the root of our ideas. So can you speak to this theory? Sure. It's, I'm not sure I I would argue that the media causes all these other problems. It seems to me more like the media is a symptom of problems that exist, have already existed and maybe preceded, predated the whatever media it is that we're talking about, whether film or newspapers or television or the internet. I feel like part of this ideology is that the media is the only place where our ideas come from. So I think that's also part of my question is whether like people get ideas from other experiences they have in the world other than the media. Sure. Uh, uh, No, I would agree that the media is supremely important in how, in how, where the ideas that we have come from. Um, They help shape our conception of the world that we live in, but it's by no means the only place. Henry Giroux is a, a scholar who I admire, and he describes the media as one source of pedagogy, but so, but there are many other places as well. The government is one place. Schools, of course, and education is an, another location, a, a pedagogical location where we learn what it means to be in the world. And our community and our families is, 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 is another source. So there's, um, Society, the government, the media, the schools, these are all sources of public pedagogy that help to shape our worldviews. I'm just thinking about the like, even everyday experiences you might have going to the grocery store as a child and watching whether or not your parents made eye contact with the person ringing them up or how they talk to them. And that is also something that those kind of experiences experiences teach people their place in the world and the place of other people in the world. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Inter those those tiny interactions. Yeah, or um, interacting with a server in a restaurant. Right those, versus the way that a person might talk to their might talk to their supervisor and observing yeah. the difference in that. Yeah, and those personal human interactions, I have to think, are far more important than mediated interactions that we sort of passively consume through different forms of media. But then the media is a significant source of information about people who are different from us, maybe people who don't exist in our community or are newly arriving, people who you might otherwise not interact with in your local community um, that we do experience through documentary films or TV shows set in a different location, either across the country or a different country. So thinking about the media as, as a tool of pedagogy, it's not uncommon that, like, I have friends who don't let their kids watch Disney movies. Um, and that makes sense. If you, if you have a young daughter and you don't want to indoctrinate her into an Disney princess ideology, um, you can watch different movies. That's a perfectly valid choice. Uh, but it's not enough because the kids are going to learn it anyway. Or if it's not Disney princesses, if it's like violent video games, we all exist in the same culture. And so it's difficult to isolate your own household from the rest of the broader culture. Um, it's, it's sort of a losing battle. And it may be more effective to engage in these pieces of media with your kids and actively discuss them. Like watch the Disney movie and then point out moments that happen and why why do that not why not something else why is prince charming charming and on and on and i'm sure there's many better questions to be to be asked or discussions to be had with with kids so in the world that we're striving for what would we like the media to be well that's a nice question it's it's it's, a, it's refreshing because it's it's not it's refreshing to have an opportunity to think about um, the way things could be rather than thinking about the problems with how thing, how everything is. I, I would like to see a fully funded media ecosystem that offers multiple competing viewpoints that doesn't try to be everything to everybody that where local independent producers aren't struggling for funds to get their voices heard while single corporations dominate every single aspect of media that we consume, whether we're reading or surfing the internet or relaxing, watching a some action movie at home, um, all of which could be fun and entertaining, but there's so many voices that get drowned out. So a media ecosystem that is inclusive, that includes voices from immigrants, from women, from differently abled people, and um, that include them not simply as um, tokens on the screen, but at every stage of production and in the leadership of the organizations as well. Um, whether that happens through government sponsorship or I don't know that there is a single panacea that's going to solve the problem, but um, perhaps multiple sources of funding to be able to maintain these operations. The Guardian newspaper has an interesting... The, the Guardian is interesting because, of course, it's a British newspaper, but they have a presence in most English-speaking countries through the internet, but they maintain their app, uh, some relative independence through an endowment and then through listen, uh, reader, reader sponsorship along the lines of public media in the United States. Many other countries have stronger 
national media systems, both supporting film and television compared to the United States, there are benefits to that as well as disadvantages. There's, of course, issues with government censorship of information, but then there are trade-offs because the corporate influence is slightly may may be slightly less. It's hard to know exactly where the solution lies. And again, I don't think there's one solution. You are listening to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. Today we are talking about the media, and you just heard my interview with Tim Sutton on the state of the media in the U.S. today and what we would like the media to be. If you missed our show today, you can find it on SoundCloud and iTunes under Indigo Radio. I am going to let Amy Goodman have the last words of the show, and then we will go out with a song, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, by Gil Scott Heron. Thanks for listening. What I want to see in the networks, it's not so much about who the hosts are. It's about getting those voices out from the front line in these huge media spaces, going to where the silence is. It's a different kind of reality television. It's showing the reality of people's lives on the ground. That's what we need in this country. That's what will save us. I see the media like a huge kitchen table that stretches across the globe, that we all sit around and debate and discuss the most important issues of the day, war and peace, life and death, and anything less than that is a disservice to a democratic society. to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary, the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the shape of a war theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nub. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mae pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on the court from 29 District. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on the rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still life of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he has been saving for just the proper occasion. Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so damn relevant, and women will not care if Dick finally got down with Jane on Search for Tomorrow because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry R. Women Liberationist and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Keyes, nor sung by Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck, or The Rare Earth. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live.